on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, the high-tech applications to improve the agriculture sector. Two or three years' time when we're back in drought conditions, this is the type of technology that's going to give people um, the opportunity to be a little bit more frugal with their water, retain crop loads and crop quality, but, you know, using less water. And, and the, the, these are technologies that need to be trialled now in order to develop that. Including the app that manages all aspects of the farm, including biosecurity. So if someone checks in, you can have a question, have you cleaned equipment before coming on site? If they answer no, it'll notify the farmer or the person that manages the site as well as the person visiting to say, hey, you've answered one of these questions wrong, you guys need to have a chat to make sure you're not bringing anything onto the site. Yeah, a couple of stories today about how farming is becoming more of a high-tech game into the future. G'day, Tony, with you on this midweek Wednesday. Not the high-tech guru, but I think I will learn something today with those stories. And being a Wednesday, of course, Richard Bailey will be along with the livestock markets and also his owl impression. you got to listen out for that. Plus the vexed issue of bobby calves and the future, an issue we've discussed quite a bit lately. There was a conference yesterday which highlighted the problem. We'll take you there in just a moment. Also a check on the latest on the weather, and uh, we take your thoughts on any issues via the text line as well. If you've got something you'd like to tell us, 0438 0438 922936 is that number. First up, as shoppers become more conscious of the welfare of farmed animals, Peakbody Australian Dairy is urging farmers to begin the process of phasing out bobby calves before the industry loses its social licence to operate. Bobby calves are animals under the age of 30 days and are usually male calves which are not needed by dairy farms to replace the existing herd. And the social licence is the public's trust, of course, in an industry to operate in a way that is ethically acceptable. Sarah Bolton, Dairy Australia's National Lead of Animal Welfare, spoke to Jane McNaughton in Melbourne after yesterday's calf management conference. As a society, our values are continually evolving. You know, what once was acceptable 10, 20, even 100 years ago um, is often not acceptable a little bit further down the track. And so as an agricultural industry, it's really important that we recognise that we're part of society. We have to make sure that the way we manage animals continues to evolve in line with evolving community values and through that process shore up the social sustainability of how we produce food. But importantly, we can't just move to being socially acceptable, we have to be economically viable and environmentally sustainable as well. So a lot of our discussions really centres on what does the future look like for food production and particular animal agriculture when it comes to being both environmentally, socially and economically sustainable. How do most farmers respond to these sorts of quite progressive ideas really? We did see a few farmers having some robust discussion about the feasibility of any of this sort of stuff, whether it's dairy beef, how much animal welfare should be on the agenda, how much consumers are actually willing to pay for this change. So what's the general vibe you get at the end of a day like this? Yeah, I think whenever you're having conversations about change, it's, it's challenging to begin with. No one really likes change. And often when it comes to animal welfare as a topic, it's emotive, not just for people on the street, but for people that care for animals. We do that because, you know, we're, we are actually emotionally invested in what we do. And so talking about change that involves how we care for animals and their welfare is really challenging. But at the same time, the reason we're having these conversations is because it's, it's not all pressure, it's not all doom and gloom. There are some really significant 
significant opportunities if we're able to change and evolve in a way that is informed by natural science, by social science, and if we can collaboratively as an industry map out what does a future look like that works for us, that works at farm level, along supply chains, works for the animals, um, but also importantly meets with public acceptance as well. So it is challenging, but there are significant opportunities in that too. As far as solutions to one of the big issues being bobby calves in the dairy industry, you've for a while now been researching dairy beef and genetics around that. So what role do you think that plays in the future of the dairy industry? The status quo within the dairy industry has been to breed calves every year so that cows produce milk. Um, Only a component of those calves are required for replacement milking purposes that are going to go into the dairy themselves and the rest have either been managed through uh, early life slaughter practices, whether that's humane euthanasia at birth on farm or processing through the abattoir at five days of age or when beef prices are favourable they're often red for beef. In the areas that we work in in social science we know that early life slaughter is out of step with public values and it's something that um, we need to over time replace with the practice of raising these animals for beef. So in terms of the future the the goal that we're working towards is effectively um, breeding calves that are fit for purpose as replacement milking females and the rest of the calves are bred to be economically viable beef animals so a very strong role. How much change is that actually going to take whether it's for dairy beef or any other aspect for this animal to have a purpose because we know that there's actually a historically low amount of on-farm euthanasia in Australia and Victoria at the moment. Yeah, so we have seen in in the past that surplus calves are often raised for beef when beef commodity prices are high and it's economically viable, and that makes a lot of sense. But when beef prices are lower, for example, if we have drought or something along those lines, often more calves are managed through early life slaughter pathways. And so the challenge for us as an industry is how do we reduce and eventually eliminate the number of calves that are managed through those early life slaughter pathways despite fluctuating beef commodity prices and seasonal conditions And I guess the exciting thing is that we actually have a lot of opportunities in that space to make sure that we're breeding, feeding and marketing surplus calves that are more economically viable for beef production. So things like using a combination of sex semen and quality targeted beef genetics in what are often called beef on dairy breeding programs gives us an opportunity to breed and then feed calves that are more likely to return a profit in less favourable beef commodity prices in comparison to if we were just putting Holstein or Jersey bulls out in the herd and expecting those pure dairy breed calves to make us a profit as a beef animal. There were some statistics uh, on the screen today about where different parts of Australia and Victoria sit as far as the breakdown of where the surplus calves end up. Victoria seems to be slightly behind the rest of the country, to be frank, about on-farm euthanasia, bobby calves and not necessarily taking up dairy beef as much. Why is that? So we see a lot of regional variation in the percentage of calves that are managed through different pathways and that comes down to a number of different factors. Access to markets is one thing. So for example, uh, we only have abattoirs that process bobby calves at five days of age in Victoria and Tasmania. So if you're a farmer in Western Australia or Northern New South Wales, geographically you don't actually have access to those markets. But the other key thing about Southwest Victoria and Gippsland in particular, as well as Tasmania, is that um, we have a much higher 
higher percentage of farms using seasonal calving systems. And so we have a whole lot of calves hitting the ground at, at one time. We often also have a higher percentage of Jersey genetics in those herds because they're grass-based and bred to be efficient. And so we see those systems come under increased pressure when it comes to breeding and rearing all the calves born, including some for beef. If we contrast that with the New South Wales or Dairy New South Wales Regional Development Program area, we see a high, higher percentage of Holstein cows in the herd, which generally a Holstein cross with a beef bull is an easier prospect for a quality beef carcass in comparison to a Jersey animal. Not that Jerseys don't have their own special characteristics, but also less seasonal calving there as well. So implement a beef on dairy breeding program, rearing all the calves that are born on the farm in a year-round or split calving system is simply easier in some regions than it is in others. Sarah Bolton, Dairy Australia's National Lead of Animal Welfare, speaking there with Jane McNaughton about the issue of bobby calves at yesterday's calf management conference, which was held in Melbourne. Now, next week, the National Dairy Conference will be held here in Hobart. And our reporters Meg Powell and Fiona Breen will take you to the National Dairy Conference. I'm sure Bobby Carms will be one of the many issues discussed. That's next Thursday and Friday. We'll do a full outside broadcast on the Thursday and some crosses to the Dairy Conference on Friday next week. Well, machines that pick wine grapes cleanly, UV lamps to kill diseases at night. They're worth their weight in gold for those grape growers embracing tech in the vineyard. They're part of a suite of emerging technologies road tested by Wine Australia as part of a national program to lift fruit quality. Larissa Smith spoke to Dave Gurner about what gear can make life easier for grape growers. 2022 leading into 23 vintage, it's been an incredibly wet year. So as an example, we've got um, soil moisture sensing and, and canopy sensors that are showing growers the, um, the uptake of water from their vines. So in a year like this one, it's, it's actually been not that relevant. Um, which is, you know, the irony is in two or three years' time when we're back in drought conditions, this is the type of technology that's going to give people um, the opportunity to be a little bit more frugal with their water, retain crop loads and crop quality, but, you know, using less water. And, and the, the, these are technologies that need to be trialled now in order to develop that, like I said, that pathway of knowledge. So then two or three years' time, you know what to expect. But, um, you know, we've had um, some success with what's called a MOG removal unit. So this is a a little contraption or a machine that is um, attached to a harvester and allows you to pick your fruit really cleanly. So it gets rid of all the stems and the leaves and the, the rackets and all the additional stuff. So you're just delivering really, really clean fruit into the winery. There are really large multifunction harvesters which enable you to do this, but they're, they're very expensive. And this thing's a, a much more affordable unit that basically every grower can access now and really what it's hitting is is the premiumization narrative so you're able to pick really good quality fruit and deliver it to the wine cleanly uh, and you could, might get a better price for it but it's also helping lift the, the the quality of wine that's being produced. What about technology that helps you manage your people? What we've seen post-pandemic is, is a huge shortage of people from a labour point of view uh, and it's front of mind for a lot of wine production businesses at the moment so if in, in terms of managing the labor force you know things like robotics and automation are, are becoming mainstream but there's a lot of the other things a number of farm management platforms now so these are apps and, and web-based solutions that allow people to monitor their workforce communicate with them in real time uh, manage health and safety um, much more closely 
and people are now starting their working day in the vineyard as opposed to having to come to the vineyard office to do a you know, stand-up meeting. So you've got a lot more real-time capability for, for your workforce and, and again that health and safety is kind of front of mind. So people are able to monitor their, um, their people and, and make sure that they're um, you know, never, never working alone and, and they're always in contact with their, their supervisor, things like that. And is that where, say, new auto-steer technology attached to tractors can help with fatigue management? Exactly, yeah. So we've seen um, auto-steer technologies come online in leaps and bounds in the last couple of years. So you've got a, a reduced workforce now um, that are being... Um, asked to do a lot more work, work longer shifts, for example, and, and things like auto steer are helping them manage their fatigue levels. It's just so so much easier to do a 12-hour shift driving a tractor where you're less worried about where you're steering. It might be at night time and you've got less visibility. The auto steer is managing that part and all you're doing is focused on the job and, and literally steering and accelerating and decelerating. So a lot less fatigue levels as the driver comes off at the end of a shift makes for a healthier and safer, safer workplace as well. And I guess if you do have less staff, that's where robotics can also be of use. To some people it might seem a little bit blue sky, but it's, it's becoming more of a reality with a lot of the engineering happening overseas and, and coming into Australia. Yeah, very true. Um, we're, we're seeing a huge momentum shift with things like autonomous vehicles and, and robotic machinery for, for farms, but specifically in viticulture. There's, there's a lot of activity in Europe at the moment, and I think we've been watching Europe to see what happens there, and you see a lot of equipment now being used. It's available off the shelf. It's, it's got years' worth of history behind it now. It's not a, a future-looking thing. So our challenge in Australia is to bring these companies into Australia, um, test it and trial it in, in Australian conditions. But to do this really quickly, we've got a big conference in Adelaide called Evoke Ag. Uh, it's, uh, it's been broadcast um, globally, and we're seeing some of the robotics companies from Europe, for example, are coming to Evoke Ag specifically to um, engage with the Australian agricultural sectors and specifically in the wine sector where we're seeing companies such as um, NIO Technologies who are a French company who have a whole range of autonomous and uh, robotic platforms um, they're coming to Australia to um, build a, uh, an environment in which they can test and trial. I'm really interested in a piece of technology that can kill downy mildew overnight. Downy and powdery mildew, it's, it's not new science, it's been around for a couple of decades, it's just not had the adoption and it's UV lights, basically UV, um, UV panels that are run at night time when the, the downy and the powdery express themselves and it actually kills them and stops them from um, proliferating. A company in Europe uh, called Saga Robotics have developed these, they've trialled it in strawberries and it is uh, raging success. So they're moving over to viticulture now and having a really good result with it. So again, we're really keen to test and trial that here in Australia. And you know, the, the obvious advantages of using UV instead of using chemicals is that, is that reduction in, in chemistry, which is both expensive and also not so flush for the environment. This is like a, a big arm that goes over the, the canopy. Yeah, essentially, if you can imagine a, a large kind of, you know, sort of canopy, like a, a U-shaped canopy over the top of a, a tractor or it's been uh, on, on top of one of these autonomous robots is ideal. Um, and it can just run up and down the rows at night time with the UV lights on and it, and it um, if it can penetrate the canopy, it can kill the, the down in the powdery in situ, yeah, without needing any chemistry. How do you think Tasmanian wine grape growers are placed to utilise some of this technology but also take advantage of climate variability? What, what you see from a lot of Tasmanian wine producers is, is a focus on premium 
quality wine and, and therefore fruits. So it's, it's very different to a lot of other Australian producers, especially at the moment. But with that premium outcome in mind, it's a really fantastic opportunity for them to deploy technology to help them achieve this premium outcome. So for things like robotics and automation, it, it takes the decision-making away from people and, and you can apply the same treatments consistently and, and safely. The natural disposition of Tasmanian grape growers is this sort of push towards premiumisation. I think they're naturally quite innovative, uh, very curious about new technology. Um, and we're seeing here at an AgTech demo day in at the Milton Vineyards, you know, the turnout and the interest in this type of technology is a really good signal that it's it's on front of mind for a lot of a lot of great producers here. It's Dave Gurner, Program Manager for Regional Innovation with Wine Australia, talking to Larissa Smith about some of the latest technologies tested at its 24 demonstration sites at various vineyards around the country. More on tech, and if you're on a property with a large number of staff and contractors moving around the place, it can be tricky to manage everyone. A couple of years ago, agri-tech company Onside developed a free app to monitor movements around farms and vineyards. The same app has now been modified to track not only people but biosecurity threats as well. Here's the company's guy, Davidson, to explain how. So you use the app or QR code or kiosk on a tablet to sign into a property. Um, and when you do that, it sends off a real-time alert to the venue manager or whoever wants to know that someone's come on site. So you don't need to pick up the phone or anything anymore. Um, and when you check in as someone coming on site, you get to go through all the things like your um, safety uh, check for that property. So you get to see where the hazards are on a map of the site. You can also see any tasks that need to be done. So you might have a broken wire pinpointed out in the vineyard. Um, it will go right down to the row and block that it's in so you can go find it easily. Uh, but also rules and, and questions around biosecurity as well. So if someone checks in, you can have a question, have you cleaned equipment before coming on site? If they answer no, it'll notify the farmer or the person that manages the site as well as the person visiting to say, hey, you've answered one of these questions wrong, you guys need to have a chat to make sure you're not bringing anything onto the site. What other aspects does it have in terms of people management? Yeah, so um, basically it's got at the ground level it's a traceability report so you can see who's come and gone from the site, what jobs they've been doing, how long they've been on site for, how they've answered questions or any extra commentary they've put. So it's a nice way of not only historically being able to report on who's come and gone, which is useful for um, certain compliance schemes or just generally if you do have an incursion or something comes on your property, you can trace back to where it came from. But also um, in real time, you'll be notified who's on site and if you're on site, you can see who's around you and what they're doing to make sure you keep yourself safe and everyone can work around each other. Can you give me some examples of where that traceability function has worked? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, we've had, it's quite sad, but we've had quite a few incursions recently in New Zealand. We had um, uh, PSA in the kiwifruit sector. Um, we've had uh, Embovis in the dairy sector. And, um, you know, we've had a few examples of uh, one of our customers in the dairy sector that got Embovis on their farm. They said that the traceability reports were really useful to be able to look back and see where that had come from, what, what movement or what person had brought that on. Um, but also there was a, a case in the poultry industry as well where they had um, found salmonella on one of the farms and so they were able to trace back and it wasn't that it came from another poultry farm but it actually came from an egg producing farm. So being able to look across different types of farming operations as well, not just focusing on one sector. Almost across the whole supply chain. That's right, 100% and, and not even that, you know, something like brown marmorated stink bug, if that ever came in, that's going to affect multiple sectors, not just one. So being able to see this multi-sector movement of how thing, uh, view of how things move is super important. In my phone, I have um, demo sites all around New Zealand and Australia. So I might be in Victoria and I can see a property that's in New Zealand and what's happening on that in real time. Um, you know, that's an extreme case, but there is 
very commonly, if not you know a couple of k's away or something, where there's a site that you can't be managing all the time. It's also common to have you know multiple different sites in different states, for example, in vineyards, orchards, wherever. Um, so being able to see who's there in real time, what they're doing, contact them, but also as you say, assign tasks or notify of new hazards on site from anywhere in the world. Literally, you could be on holiday and still see the stuff going on. That's really useful because otherwise you have to go to the farm, get the visitor record, or pin something on a on a notice board, and that's just not practical. Are there any modifications for the app in the pipeline? Heaps. We never we never have a lack of ideas. It's always um, what do we prioritise first? That's always the question. And we're heavy into co-development with industries. That's how um, we only launched in Australia um, in June 2021. But when we got here and we started showing different sectors like the wine sector and the poultry sector um, through the on-site app, it was instantly they can see the value. Um, because we heavily co-developed over the last five, six years with New Zealand industries like wine, orchards, poultry, dairy. So now we've got a nice product that works for all industries, but we've also solved a lot of those needs. There's always going to be more things, right? So, you know, m- moving more into things like um, maybe time shedding or being able to um, do a bit more robustness in the biosecurity stuff. That's all things that will be coming up. Some of the newer developments or the, or the ones closer on the roadmap is contractor management, like being able to manage documentation and, and um, be able to say whether contractors are approved to work on your site or not. Not only is that captured, but when they check in, it'll operationalise it. So it'll tell you this person is or isn't as, as a real-time notification rather than it being sitting in the back end and no one ever seeing that status of whether they're approved or not. The old expression used to be, uh, yes, all done with mirrors. Now it's all done with apps. Guy Davidson from Digital Tech Company on site chatting apps to Larissa Smith. Coming up in just a moment, a massive study to find out just what lives in private forests in Tasmania. Ever feel like the world is overflowing with news? It's like trying to drink from a fire hose. But Charlie Pickering and the team from The Weekly are prepared. Let's do this. They watch all the news so you don't have to. Ready, Charlie? Ready. Wait, that fire hose isn't real. It's just a sound effect, right? Well, let's find out. The new season of The Weekly starts tonight on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now, if you're ever wondering about the environmental health of a place, a really good indicator is the biodiversity and abundance. Forico is Tasmania's largest private landowner, which it uses for timber plantations, recently took part in a massive study to find out just what lives in the forests. Meg Powell followed an ecologist out to a hidden forest at the back of Burnie to go birdwatching. Yes, yeah, so we're in a young plantation. As you can see, there's a yellow-throated honeyeater chasing the grey fantail. As you can see out here, it's a nice sunny morning. We've got all the birds calling. The sun's rising. doesn't get better than this. This is Dr Ernst Kermer. He's a big fan of birds. I work for Forico. We're one of the largest um, private plantation companies in, Australia, in uh, Tasmania. And uh, here to talk about birds and biodiversity and natural capital reporting, I guess. Dr Kermera was recently involved in an eight-week study aimed at tracking biodiversity in plantations and surrounding native forest. 
That included setting up a series of points within the forestry estate where scientists could observe and record animal sounds, scat and sightings. Yeah, so we kicked off in late September and we did an intensive study with uh, Ecological Australia. They had eight ecologists out here for two weeks. So we were doing the birds, ground mammals and also the scat searches. Um, so we're trying to do a complete fauna study of all the different animal groups. Why do this? It's a forestry company. What's the point of doing this survey? Yeah, so this is a voluntary activity. Um, Forestco is part of the new forest group and they're very much into a landscape approach, a more holistic approach to managing their natural assets. So we're trying to value both the natural components of our forest and also the plantation components in our annual reporting and that's what we talk about natural capital reporting. As an ecologist working for a major forestry company, one of his more challenging jobs is to marry economic efficiency with environmental protection. Forestry in Tasmania has it's got a fairly fraught history and it can be a very divisive topic. Some cynics among us might say is this is just an exercise in um, marketing. It's just trying to make a forestry company look good. What would you say to that? Yeah, look, as coming from the perspective uh, from an ecologist, I'm sort of interested in, you know, what are the different trade-offs that we can get, you know, rather than looking at things in a polarised way. Um, for example, we just drove in this morning and saw the gorse and so the automatic view might be, oh yeah, gorse is a terrible thing, we need to get rid of it all. But it's actually providing a lot of uh, shelter and understory habitat for the scrub wrens and fairy wrens and bird life. And it also offers a bit of protection against um, predators, you know, if you did have um, feral cats or something. So it's, it's hard to have that sort of polarised view when you're an ecologist. I like to just view things as, you know, what are the advantages and disadvantages in a particular setting. And that's part of the natural capital reporting. If we can understand what the, how the diversity and abundance changes with plantation age and look at that in the landscape context, we can sort of provide a better understanding of you know, at the whole of landscape level, what are we actually contributing here to, in terms of carbon, in terms of water, in terms of um, biodiversity values? So one of the things we can do is, uh, currently we do scheduling for harvesting. So when is the optimal time to harvest and where in the landscape do we harvest? But this information we can actually include to manage things like what we call green-up delays. For example, with Tasmanian devils, we know that they don't like large areas of cleared landscapes. Um, so what we're doing is creating what we call an eight-year green-up delay. So that means that the adjacent area from a clear-fall event, we wait eight years before we commence any activity in that. So you can imagine that at the whole of landscape when we're talking about all the birds and the different fauna groups, we can actually get a balanced outcome and make sure we have a sustainable ecosystem for, um, for our biodiversity. As Dr. Ernst Camera telling Meg Powell about the huge biodiversity study recently undertaken amongst Tasmania's largest private forest by Forica, beautiful bird noises in the background, weren't they sensational? Still to come on the country are a world record yield of barley and wheat, the livestock markets with Richard Bailey, and a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Rachel Fisher. 
Thanks, Tony. In ABC News, the federal government will pay pharmacists and GPs to go into the nation's aged care facilities to deliver another round of the COVID vaccine. Health Minister Mark Butler has announced all Australians aged 18 and over will be able to get a fifth dose of the COVID vaccine within a fortnight. Part of the rollout will include incentive payments of $118 per visit for pharmacists and GPs to attend aged care facilities. New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet has warned Australian banks have a responsibility to look after their customers after the Reserve Bank raised interest rates for a ninth time in a row. The Reserve Bank yesterday lifted the official cash rate by a quarter of a percentage point to 3.35%. And a private hospital in Tasmania's south will temporarily reduce its emergency department's operating hours because of staffing challenges. From this week, Calvary Hospital in Lena Valley will close its emergency department from 5.30 on a Friday afternoon until 7.30 on a Monday morning. We'll have more news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. And Luke Johnston joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Luke. G'day, Tony. What a, what a difference 24 hours can make. Yesterday's mostly uh, sunny or partly cloudy to yeah. today's mostly cloudy or just cloudy, I guess. Yeah, it's just cloudy, yeah. Yeah, um, we... Did you hear those bird noises? Weren't they beautiful? They were, yeah. yeah. Oh. It's not as not quite as extreme as the morning cross I did when I was talking to someone in the, the northwest about a dinosaur park and they had the Jurassic Park theme song playing. <laughs> but bird, it's kind of like a bird song, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, I reckon the birds tell you when the weather's coming and when the black yeah. cockatiels appear, I think, hello, it's going to rain. Am I right? Well, yeah, well, usually I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm the black glass. Not a, not a bird or roller gist. But there is this there is this, this oh. gull that sits on a flagpole right outside the office. If you've been following on Twitter, it usually hangs around when the weather's nice, and it goes away when it rains. So that's how you related. get your forecast, is it? Yeah, yeah well, it's not there at the moment, so I'm a little bit worried because the weather's raining over. And I think the word's ornithologist you're looking for. I might ornithologist. Be is that it? Yeah, mm. yeah, it sounds better than birdophologist, doesn't it? <laughs> Seagullithologist. No. Um, so we better do the rainfall. Have we got any rainfall? Yeah. I'll Stick to the weather. Well, uh, there, there was a, a little bit of rainfall up in the northeast up to 9am. It had about a millimetre at St Helens and uh, two millimetres at Grey. And, and since 9am, we've had a further one millimetre or so about Mount Victoria and uh, Mount Arthur's Summit up in the northeast. For today, we're looking at some light showers uh, across the uh, the north, mostly about higher ground, although we are seeing some showers arrive on the northwest coast between Burn, uh, Burnie and Wynyard at the moment. So not expecting huge totals for the remainder of today. Be lucky to get more than five millimetres, even at those elevated sites. But also some light showers coming on shore about the far southern coasts. Maybe that's what scared away our goal. Into tomorrow, some afternoon showers. Uh, sorry, light showers about the north and west becoming more likely about the north coast uh, during the evening. Again, you'd be lucky to get more than five millimetres or so. So we're not talking large rainfall totals today or tomorrow. Friday, better chance of some, some rain with uh, showers about the north and east extending to remaining districts in the afternoon with uh, potentially a small chance of some afternoon thunderstorms, uh, which might give us bursts of uh, up to around 15 millimetres of rain here or there. So, you know, not, not a great deal of rain around, Tony. Okay. The goal might want an upgraded enterprise agreement, more chips, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, well, there's plenty of other flagpoles to, to sit on in the city, I suppose. <laughs> been an interesting occupation, wouldn't it, sitting on a flagpole watching the world go by? Oh, I suppose so. Yeah. Anyway. It does make me wonder what it's doing now, though. Have we got to the weekend right through? 
Uh, we got to, to Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Look, Saturday looks mostly fine apart from some light showers inland during the afternoon, so mostly dry day, fairly warm temperatures into the mid-20s again. And then on Sunday, there's a trough sweeping across the state during the day. So that'll give some more showers to the, the west and east of the state uh, with a few passing showers over the southeast, the upper Derwent Valley and Midlands. But uh, not, not expecting huge rainfall totals there either. But if you're looking at the two wettest days in the week ahead, it's Friday, particularly if you get a decent shower or potentially a storm, or Sunday with the passing trough. Okay, the passing trough. Uh, warnings, what have we got? None. Still no warnings today. Zilch. Nothing. Zilch. Nihil. Big high pressure system just to the south of Tasmania at the moment, moving into the Tasman Sea, so relatively light winds, and it's a good segue into the coastal waters. Uh, our southwest to southeasterly winds today, uh, 10 to 20 knots, uh, tending a bit more easterly during the course of uh, this evening. Tomorrow, east and northeasterly winds, 5 to 15 knots, tending southeasterly about the west coast. Uh, through Bass Strait today and tomorrow, we've got a westerly swell below one metre. Uh, the west and south has a south to southwesterly 2.5 to 3.5 metres, decaying to more like uh, 2 to 2.5 metres tomorrow. The east coast has got a south to southwesterly swell, 1 to 2 metre, uh, increasing to 3.5 metres offshore in the lower east uh, this afternoon and uh, decreasing to 1.5 to 2.5 metres tomorrow. Okay. I'm just thinking, what did the farmers used to do 100 years ago when there was no bureau to tell them what the forecast is? What do they used to do about the weather? They just winged it, I suppose, like a gull. Uh-huh. Hey? I see what you did there. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. <laughs> well done. You've redeemed yourself after yesterday's George Clooney mishap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're not going to talk George Clooney anymore, okay? No. Unless he no. is. Although he, he does own a, I think he does own a, um, a brewery that makes really? tequila in Mexico, I'm pretty sure. So we could kind of say he's a farmer, couldn't we? I, I guess so. And if I ever get yeah. an interview with him, Luke, I'll include you in the interview, okay? All right. No, I'll be, be sure to, I'll be sure to come along. Thanks very much. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. Luke Johnston from the Bureau with the latest information for you on the weather and the gull. Uh, Coming up, a world record yield for both wheat and barley. Afternoons with Joel Reinberger. We are still on Flinders Island for the Islander Portrait Prizes. C.L. Clarkson. I painted my father, Ken Clarkson. Just kind of had the the painting and I was like, right, got to make sure he looks good, otherwise I'm going to get disowned. (laughs) He goes, oh, no, you just (laughs) paint me, yeah? Am I going to look a bit like a a pompous, posh fellow if I go to an exhibition with my own face on display? Joel Reinberger. Weekdays from 1.30pm on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Uh, Tim the Courier on the text line says, Hi Tony, my late father, a farmer, worried constantly about the weather his entire life. And you know what? He never changed it even once. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Don't worry about something you can't change. Yeah. An English grain grower has set Guinness World Records for both wheat and barley. Tim Lammyman, who crops 600 hectares in the county of Lincolnshire, achieved a wheat yield of 17.96 tonnes to the hectare, beating the previous record of 17.40 tonnes from New Zealand farmer Eric Watson in 2020. He also registered a barley yield of 16.21 tonnes to the hectare, beating his own world record by two tonnes. That's, that's a good effort. 
He says a, a lot of effort and inputs contributed to the record-breaking crops. It's one of those things that in the UK we call it no stone unturned, or it's the pun I use here, because we, we sort of start from the land working side, which is something I've done for the last 25 years, and then move into um, the bionature type nutrition and obviously the better fungicides from BSF uh, to, to create these yields. So we basically go from producing a cytokinin type growth in the autumn, which is basically increasing the fibrous root mass of the plant, uh, be it wheat or barley or oilseed rape, uh, create a better stem, uh, which you know slightly thicker, slightly stronger, slightly better branched, uh, or in the case of uh, wheat and barley, slightly better tillered, uh, which sets it up for the spring. Uh, and then we, we have the same product again, which is what we call delta nitrogen, uh, in the spring, uh, early on before applying proper nitrogen. Uh, the difference being is delta nitrogen creates cytokinin growth, which is what we've just been talking about, that fibrous root structure, and it activates the root up, and we find it captures more nitrogen uh, out, out of the plant. Uh, by activating the root structure up there. And it's something, you know, having been in the Yield Enhancement Network for the last 10 years now, something we can prove time and time again from the reports we've got out of that. Okay, so lots of inputs. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we classify each field. Um, so not every field's run on the on the same system. So the highest yielding ones that produce those sort of 14 to um, currently 18 ton a hectare yields we're pushing those at somewhere between 310 and 350 kilos, depending on the season and the carryover of soil nitrogen and, and those sort of bits. You know, 314 kilos of what we used last year for the world record with the wheat, uh, and we were down at 200 and around about 220 for the winter barley, um, which, you know, is quite an incredible conversion rate from the nitrogen to, to, to the yield. And we've been reporting about the cost of inputs, but I suppose even... At, at a high cost for quite a large amount of inputs, the numbers stack up when you're achieving those yields. Yes, and it's like everything else. You you know, with inherent data on, on our fields, we, we know what each field's capable of doing. We are in an area of outstanding natural beauty. I do have hills, have an awful lot of stone in my land, uh, and it's not every field that can do that yield. You know, we're talking of the, the better land with the slightly higher clay content on the top of the hills, obviously the steeper hills, you know, we're sort of talking ten to twelve ton a hectare type yields, and we have to base the nitrogen on that sort of on that sort of basis. So I wouldn't be throwing three hundred and three hundred to three hundred and fifty kilos across the farm only on the on the better fields that we know that's capable of pushing that and tuning it back to to sort of two hundred kilos, two twenty kilos on the fields that's only going to do ten to twelve ton a hectare, which you know I want to try and get across because everybody thinks you're chucking it across the farm, which is not the case. What were seasonal conditions like? Uh, so we had uh, an incredible drought for us. Obviously, in Australia, it wouldn't be the same equivalent. Um, I think in, in the Yield Enhancement Network report I got from ADAS, uh, they, they reckoned we had 116 mil for the main spring growing season, which for us is miles down on what we'd normally have. Uh, we had the record temperatures, well, right next door to my Sandland farm, so we had a 40, just over, I think it was 40.4 degrees uh, temperature right in the middle of summer, which obviously folded up a lot of crops. But because of some of the nutritional products we use, we managed to keep them growing. It was only the second time when the temperature got up to about 37, they started to fold on my farm. So how did you grow record-breaking crops in a drought? Well, it goes back to producing producing root structures. Uh, and what we found on this land, we have a inherent uh, water source so we're all spring water we don't have any mains water on here 
so our underlying chalkland will, in a drought, you know, subaquifer water back upwards. And so that's probably where we've got some of the yield from. The fact that we've got sunlight, which we don't normally have in the UK, uh, a lot higher higher levels of sunlight in, in the ripening time. Uh, so we've got very high spec weights. So um, I think it's the it's our record spec weight or hectolitre weight, if you prefer, off, off winter wheat, which was 83.6 off the record field. Normally in the UK, um, 80 hectolitre weight would be about the highest you'd achieve in a normal season. So that hot weather was actually a good thing for you. It was on on our farm. Inherently, um, we find as long as as long as we get some water, we do find that we get some very good yields on our farm. We get the incredibly good hectolitre weight with the nutrition and the fungicide programs we put in there, uh, and you know that that including the root structures that we produce. You know, um, when you're doing what we're doing with the cytokine growth and producing that that fibrous root mass, um, it's going deeper. Um, you know, we we think we're well below. The standard meter type classification that ADAS talk about, um, we were probably getting down to sort of 1.52 meters with the root structures with the amount of water they took out of the soil. So producing a quite incredible root structure um, out of the wheat and barley plants, really. Tim, are these yields, about 18 tonnes to the hectare wheat and around 16 for barley, are they outliers or do you think you're going to be able to consistently achieve those in the future on your best country? So we consistently have proved we can, in a in a normal season, do 15 ton a hectare on here on our best better fields. We've we've consistently done that now over the last 10 years. We know we can do that, but we do need incredibly good um, light intensity years like this last one um, to get that extra yield. You know, to get up to that sort of 17, 18 ton a hectare. We don't have the sunlight levels that you or New Zealand will have. So we, we have to work off what we get in the UK. But 14, 15 tonne hectares, you know, regularly achievable on this farm. When it came to harvest time, Tim, what was the experience like harvesting an 18 tonne to the hectare wheat crop? It was great fun. It was really exciting. Uh, and it's like everything else, when it's only a little bit over, over New Zealand's uh, previous record, it's always exciting because it's always down to the last trailer. So you're never quite sure until it's been over the Weybridge whether you're there or not. So, yeah, very exciting. Yeah, pretty good effort too. That was Lincolnshire farmer Tim Lammyman speaking with Angus Furley about his record-breaking wheat yield, 17.96 tonnes to the hectare, and also that record barley yield, 16.21 tonnes per hectare. And on the text line, Sean from Davis says, Hi, Tony. My ears pricked up when you mentioned Lemmyman in Lincolnshire, UK. My father was in a farming partnership with Leonard Lemmyman in Lincolnshire. Would be related. Small world. Certainly is a small world. Thanks for that, Sean. And uh, thanks for contacting us via the text line 0438922936. Richard Bailey along shortly with all the details of the livestock markets at Power Rennie yesterday. Good lamb market, apparently. Well, the Australian Meat Industry Council is warning that staff shortages and big livestock numbers are putting pressure on the processing sector. Costs are up to process meat, including labour finding workers to process. A 30% rise in cattle numbers is going to be difficult, they say. Tim Ryan is the General Manager of Industry Affairs with AMIC. He's told Amelia Bernasconi that processes and staff shortages are continuing, even though COVID restrictions are easing and visa processing is getting quicker. There are some ways businesses can adapt, and when there's a market and a profit to be made, um, we'll find ways at the margin where we can make up for the shortage. Uh, people can run more shifts, uh, not fewer, um, to, I suppose, 
get pro- animals processed um, with a with a limited workforce, but there's a limit to how much you can push people. Um, there are other ways where you can do less value adding in, in plant as well and just put more of those people um, in the critical roles um, and do more uh, primal trade and, and less subprimaling or retail-ready products. But ultimately, if we're not producing exactly what the customer wants, we're, le- we're leaving value on the table. And when we are seeing this increased supply of stock, obviously years after the drought, now numbers are really booming, but the labour force struggles. What are we likely to see from the consumer point of view when we're going to buy this meat at the shops or wherever it might be? Well, we're already seeing it at the moment. Um, Australia is a, a fairly expensive place to process livestock. Uh, we're a good 50% higher than in the United States. Uh, and more than double the likes of Brazil. So we're starting off a very high cost base to begin with. Uh, and over the last two years, that cost base has just inflated. Um, the ABS produce a range of producer price indices. Uh, so the producer index uh, for the processing sector, uh, the food processing sector, has increased 17%. Uh, there's a meat processing sub-index as well, and that's increased 23% uh, over the last two years. So meat processing has increased by even more. Uh, and we're seeing this at the retail shelf. Uh, uh, food price inflation is up, particularly for meat products. Uh, and a large part of that is purely uh, absorbing all those costs that are being felt uh, along the supply chain at, at the retail shelf. Um, but also, we export uh, more than 70% of what we produce in this country. So that high cost base is making us less and less uh, competitive globally as well. Is that a worry? Yeah, it is. It is. We've, we've got a great product and the world wants it and the world will pay for it. Um, but we need to be able to uh, create value still and have a valuable proposition. Uh, and I suppose the bigger concern is at the moment, uh, the world economy isn't looking as strong as it was. Uh, if you look at the latest uh, IMF outlook, uh, it's got a, uh, the, the GDP in most of our export markets halved on what it was last year with some of them risking going into outright recession as well. Uh, So when we're trading into this kind of environment uh, and offering a product at a very high price, it does become uh, fairly uh, difficult. And so that value proposition will be harder and harder to make going forward. How long can the red meat industry sustain that with this global uncertainty? I mean, I'd hate to think that our export market was on the rocks um, given what the world's been through in recent years, how long do you think we can sustain at uh, the current levels and prices and, and things like that before we need to rethink things? Well, I think uh, on the labour side, uh, it's going to become more of a concern uh, over the next couple of years as those cattle uh, numbers come through. Uh, the latest MLA outlook has the cattle kill increasing 30% uh, out to 2025. Um, so we're going to have to find ways that the whole supply chain can accommodate that increase in kill numbers. Uh, it's particularly concerning if we hit a dry spell, um, returning to, to conditions like we saw in 2014 or 2015, when we saw those really big kill numbers. Uh, that's going to be concerning um, from a pure labour perspective and how we can actually accommodate that. MLA have the outlook at 6.6 million uh, cattle being processed this year, but have also offered the alternative scenario of 6 million head being processed if these labour conditions uh, in plants continue and that bottleneck really constrains supply. Uh, we'll see those cattle killed uh, in the following years. Uh, but to put that uh, 
shorter uh, forecast uh, into perspective, that would equate to about 200,000 tonnes of beef not being produced in 2023. And to put a value on that, that's about $1.5 billion in farm gate value. Uh, that would be pushed back into later years, potentially uh, in a softer market if all this beef's coming online uh, at the same time. Um, in terms of how the markets are responding, I think they already are in part. Um, that, that demand situation globally, uh, at the moment we've seen uh, cattle prices come back, partly due to supply as well, um, but also that bottleneck at processing. Uh, so I think the markets are already starting to reflect these challenging conditions. And I don't think any of the underlying factors, be it supply or demand, will probably change for the rest of 2023. So how is it a federal government issue to try and support to get more, yeah, more people into the country or more people into these positions? Or how do you go about addressing that? That's a lot when you put a dollar figure well, on, isn't it? Yeah, like long, long term, um, industry is investing and... AMIC is pushing for programs to be established to create education and career pathways for young people uh, in Australia uh, to pursue a job in the meat industry. Uh, that's a long-term uh, solution uh, and saying that's in motion at the moment uh, with a range of programs behind it, um, but there are opportunities to improve those. Um, but short-term, the way to accommodate the volatility in supply uh, and the current workforce shortage is really by that visa program. So we have seen that backlog uh, reduced, but it could be reduced further and those processing times uh, shortened. Um, but AMIC also put in our pre-budget submission to the federal government a few ideas around ways we could cut costs or streamline the process for visa processing um, that might make it a bit more appealing or... Uh, economically viable to try and bring more people into the country uh, as well. Yeah, it's a problem that just won't go away for the time being, isn't it? Tim Ryan, General Manager of Industry Affairs with the Australian Meat Industry Council, speaking there with Amelia Bernasconi about the continuing staff shortages in the meat processing sector. And uh, according to uh, Tim, not going to get any better throughout the year coming up. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, let's head out to the livestock markets now and say g'day to Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard? Going well, Tony. How are you? Yeah, going really well. Remember I was telling you I was waiting for those tomatoes to turn from green to red? They turned. They've turned, but they've turned yellow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so, having a bit of a fight with a few birds on mine at the moment. Oh, <laughs> anyway. oh no. Netting. Yeah, I think. Would that be a well, first? I, I put one of those owls up, you know, that goes woohoo, woohoo. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I noticed the other day one of these birds, these, I suppose those starlings or whatever, was one of them was just sitting there next to him. Yeah. <laughs> so that wasn't working too well. Yeah, fronting him and saying, what are you yeah. going to do? Well, you know, come on, come on, let's have a fight. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, well, good luck with them. Um, mine are looking pretty good and the birds aren't touching them so far. So good. Now, let's talk cattle. What happened at Powerena? Uh, I had a few more cattle there yesterday, 64 trade and grown cattle. The really top quality cattle sold very well, uh, still, you know, at 400 cents and then just a little bit under that. But word of warning here, if the cattle aren't sought after by the local butchers, they suddenly come off. And I mean come off. It can be anything to 100 cents cheaper. 
So it's a big difference. And so if you're sending cattle in, I would just suggest you perhaps consult your agent because there is a big difference there. The best are the butcher cattle, 370 to 400 cents a kilo. But then some of the others, you know, very quickly down to 300 and, and in cases down to 270 cents a kilo, 270 to 350 cents a kilo for those. Still good cattle and well finished, but just don't suit that butcher trade. So just beware there. Few grown steers, good quality grown steers, and they met uh, just a slightly cheaper market, but still pretty good. Anywhere from three thirty-six to three forty cents a kilo, and your very heavy three hundred cents. Um, grown heifers, export heifers, three hundred to three forty-six. A uh, few good quality heavy cows, a little bit cheaper there again. Averages sort of three to four cheaper. They made anywhere from two forty to two hundred and seventy-four cents a kilo. And a few heavy bulls, two ten to two thirty-two cents. That's ten cents cheaper. Um, a few lighter weight bulls, anywhere from one ninety to one ninety-five cents a kilo. Piranha next week looked like at the moment there'll be about fifteen hundred cattle, so a good place to go and buy store cattle. Okay, that's next Thursday. That's next Thursday. Yep. All right, lamb and sheep. We're a good day in the lamb market. Uh, there were just a few more lambs, 1,382 lambs. Still are quite a few um, woolly, unfinished lambs, but the well-finished lambs, um, mainly shorn, but there were some in the wool, they sold exceptionally well, anywhere from 5 to $10 better on the previous week. The best heavy lambs made 198 to $220. Trade lambs, 154 to $200. And then when you got down into the lighter trade lambs, processors were in, well, for the light lambs, they bought lambs 85 to $100 and then a few from 135 to 145 Restockers just played around in that market a little bit. There weren't any really small, you know, very, very small lambs. So a lot of the restocker lambs, anywhere from 100 to $142 in that sort of bracket. Smaller number of sheep, only 619 sheep. This market was a little bit stronger, about $5 better in most cases. The very heavy sheep, still hard to shift, 40 to $78. Uh, heavy sheep, 72 to 76 Medium weights, 54 to $86. And light sheep, forty to fifty-four dollars. We go down to Oatlands tomorrow. They look like there'll be about ten thousand, eight to ten thousand uh, sheep and lambs down there, mainly lambs. Really good place to go if you're looking for lines of store lambs. Um, there'll be some really good lines of lambs there, so that's a very good place to go. Eleven o'clock start at Oatlands tomorrow, and if you're travelling. Just beware, there are some major um, hold-ups on the highway. I reckon from Launceston, I'm going to allow myself two hours to get there. So uh, give yourself plenty of time if you're coming from the coast. Two hours? Gee. I'm going to allow, well, it took me an hour and a half last time, so I'm going to allow myself two hours. Yeah, you're going to stop and have a cup of coffee at Campbell? No, on the way back. On, on the, the way, way back. back. Oh, okay. Actually, actually, the girls from um, from the canteen of Piranha are going to be there tomorrow, and they're going to have some food and some coffee and stuff, so that'll be good. Oh. All right, Richard, we'll talk to you Friday. Good on you, Tony. And Richard Bailey will detail the mainland markets and what's happening when he does return on Friday. And do give yourself plenty of time to get to the big sale at Oatlands tomorrow, whichever way you're coming from. Sounds like it will be a great day to sell or buy some sheep and lambs or just to catch up with a few friends. And, of course, Richard will uh, have the figures on the Oatlands sale on Friday as well. Don't forget our ABC Rural page. Plenty of great stories there. Good story on sheep. You want to have a look at it on ABC Rural and also our ABC Rural Facebook page. That's our program for today. Catch you after midday tomorrow.